Chapter 1. The Leopard Makes a Move It was the seventh month after the entry of the United States into the Second World War, as it was already officially termed. Two million eight hundred thousand stalwart young Americans had been equipped with arms, hastily trained, and shipped across the Atlantic to bolster up the cracking battle line of the League of Nations sanctioning powers. Materials of war had poured across the ocean in equally amazing quantities. In seven months, the United States had stripped herself of men and materials in order, as the propagandist put it this time, to make the world safe for liberty. So cleverly had foreign diplomacy maneuvered, so brilliantly had foreign-financed propaganda played its cards, that the objections of those veterans who still recall the tortured days and nights of the trenches of 1917 had been smothered under a wave of high-pitched national feeling. America was plunged into the war. A regiment of fresh conscripts was marching down Broadway to the accompaniment of blaring bands and the raucous cheers of the thousands who lined the curbs. From every window of the tall buildings on either side of New York's great thoroughfare, bits of paper and confetti fluttered down upon the marching men. At the docks, four huge transports were waiting to take them aboard, together with other regiments which were hastily leaving to plug up the gaps in the 12th Division on the southern front. In the Hudson River, eight huge ships of war rode at anchor. These were to be the convoys for the transports. There were six long, sleek cruisers and the capital ships, Dakota and Oregon. The Dakota was the flagship of the Atlantic Fleet, and Admiral Stanley Winston, who was going across to take command of the Mediterranean blockade for the sanctioning powers, would soon board her. At Broadway and 42nd Street, a black limousine purred at the corner waiting for a break in the ranks of the marching draftees, so that it could proceed west. The man at the wheel was pockmarked, with gnarled, bony hands, and a face upon which there was a set expression of stolidity. He wore a chauffeur's cap and uniform, but his bearing was far from being that of a servant. In the rear of the car sat a man and a woman. The man was grossly fat, and small eyes peered furtively out from between folds of flesh. There was a queer, unhealthy color in his cheeks— his companion was taller than he. Her dark hair was braided around her head, and set off as in a frame by the high collar of her ermine coat. Her red lips formed a bright line of color in her otherwise white face. The coat was open at the throat, revealing a string of shimmering pearls which lay across her breast. The woman, as well as the two men, was quite distinctly of eastern origin. A keen observer might have placed them as belonging to one of those Eurasian races of mixed European and Asiatic descent, which are notoriously known to have bred the most unprincipled spies and intriguers in history. At the feet of the fat man and the woman, a bundle lay stretched across the floor of the car, covered by an auto robe. This bundle was wriggling frantically, and for a moment the robe was thrown back, revealing a young freckle-faced boy, whose arms were tied behind his back, and who was cruelly gagged with a greasy automobile rag thrust into his mouth, and tied behind his head with a luggage strap. The boy's eyes expressed a desperate anger as he labored to a half-sitting position.